Hi, this is Austin Wintry, and you are listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. This is Alex Jones at the Sound Architect, and I'm here with Austin Wintry. Our listeners should be familiar with him by now, as we've been lucky enough to chat to him a few times about his work on the music for games such as Journey, Abzu, and Assassin's Creed Syndicate. How have you been since then, Austin? Ah, uh, very well. It's funny because even those, which are only really a couple of years ago, feel like a lifetime ago. It's been it's been a busy few years, so uh, truly no complaints. <laughs> awesome. Well, I wanted to start with perhaps an interesting question that might take you back a bit. And that is, if you remember a point in your life where you realized that music was the only job that you could ever see yourself doing, and what was that moment for you? Uh, it, it's it's interesting because I was very, very hooked at age 10, and that was catalyzed by a very specific moment in time, uh, the discovery of Jerry Goldsmith film scores, uh, specifically like uh, Planet of the Apes, Patton, um, there were a few that um, that just I went from having no real appreciation for music in general, and I mean all forms of music. I didn't listen to albums or bands or classical music or anything. It just was not on my radar. I was into games and movies and you know uh, like storytelling. I loved uh, reading novels, and I was quite convinced, even though I was you know nine years old or whatever, I was convinced I was going to be a novelist. Um, and, uh, so then, uh, I get exposed to the music by my childhood piano teacher of Jerry Goldsmith and instantly said, that's what I want to do. Uh, I was, however, for a couple of years, really passionate about, um, game design. And I was studying, uh, computer programming with the intention of going and getting like a computer science degree and then trying to get into the game industry as a programmer, uh, or designer or something. And then, uh, you know, seeing how I could integrate music into that career. And these were all the vague notions I had as like a 13 year old or whatever. Um, but I distinctly remember the closest thing I have to an exact moment, like you're asking was that I did have my, my great aunt, my father's aunt say, uh, she just kind of offhandedly made some comment saying, you know, music is such a, brutal industry that I don't see how you could ever succeed unless you're kind of in it all the way. Um, like there is no half measure for any kind of musician and she didn't even know the half of it. Uh, that was just her, her from a distance sort of wise observation. Uh, but it was that hearing that gave me the confidence to say, you know what? You're right. I can't possibly, I definitely prefer music to, to the, you know, programming or game design i think i'm better at it than those things much as i love those i I think this is more sort of who i am or what i want to do but uh i don't i definitely don't stand a chance of it working or out unless i'm willing to give it everything so it was like okay throw caution to the wind i'm going to go out of my way to have no other marketable skills and no backup plan from this point forward and that was like probably 14 or so 13 um, it was it was not long after I kind of developed this obsession, and so that that became that became the mission pretty pretty steadfastly. That's really interesting that you study game design as well, though. 
Well, I wasn't to the point of studying game design ex- discreetly. I was studying programming uh-huh. with the idea that to parlay that into game design. Uh, but I mean, I don't think game design was a thing you could study back in those days. It was like go and get a computer science degree and then go try to find a job at a game company and sort of learn that way. Uh, by the time I got to college, you know, meeting the future founders of that game company, Genova and Kelly, they were in the first ever class of the game design master's degree at USC. And that was, I think, one of the very first programs to even to even do that. So it um, it was a brand new... By the time I got to college, it was around the time that that even was a viable thing, at least as far as I'm aware. In the same way that you can go to school now and study you know, film scoring or game scoring, that also did not exist. There was a, the options were a composition degree um, and, you know, USC had this kind of esoteric, like you can, you can um, get a little certificate in specializing in media music if you want, which was essentially film scoring. Game scoring was a very new and very sort of um, niche single class basically so uh yeah different time yeah indeed (laughs) do you think that the education that someone has is important to like if they wanted to be a composer or do you think that any education pathway would work uh i think of education as being not unlike the kinds of tools we use it's a it's a sort of cousin question to um um, what kind of software do you use? What DAW do you compose in? It's like, in the end, what matters is empowering and enabling your uh, expression, your voice, your ideas, all that sort of thing. To the extent that an education is useful is only the extent to which it empowers your ability to express your ideas. So if you're, you know, like there's a great quote, I believe, from um, uh, Debussy that was, I'm paraphrasing as, I have these fantastical dreams and then I have to sit here and worry about quarter notes and sharps and flats. And so it's like the the frustration of translating this wild imagination into something that's actually sort of meaningful to the outside world beyond your skull. That's the challenge. And to me, that education is only about empowering that. This is nothing else. Degrees don't matter. Pieces of paper don't matter. Resumes don't even matter. Uh, I studied with this person, that person, blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit in the same way that I do not care about if you're a Logic, Cubase, digital performer user, if you prefer Cinebrass to, to you know, Berlin Brass, blah, blah, blah. It's all meaningless. What matters is are you able to express yourself? And so um, I personally got a lot out of my education, but I was maybe lucky Um, There's plenty of folks even within my graduating class that felt like they didn't get anything from it. And there's a lot of reasons why we could unpack that. But I don't consider it to be some default option why it's sort of intrinsically better than anything else. Yeah, I think just like the time and space to explore like who you are and what you want is the main takeaway rather than a piece of paper. Like you say, it's not important. It can be, but as a as a counterpoint to that, a composer friend of mine named Nathan Barr uh, went to the Berkeley School of Music, got a composition degree, was planning to move to L.A. and pursue the dream of Hollywood film scoring. And after graduation, he and his friends had the thought of, what if we bought a bus and like a small, uh, you know, short little kind of simple school bus 
that had been, you know, that was badly in need of sort of uh, repair and maintenance and all that. And so therefore it was very cheap. And they drove it from Boston to, for all intents and purposes, Antarctica um, for, it was a six month journey, literally trekking all the way down from, from midway up North America through Central America, all the way to the very tip of Argentina and South America, and then getting on a ferry and ending up in Antarctica. And you can you can find who you are as much from an experience like that as from any school as well. So um, just as a little bit of devil's advocate, um, I completely agree with you. I think also the sort of liberal arts uh, angle, like a lot of my favorite memories from school are from the classes that I initially resented taking but was forced to take because they were outside of my sort of dogmatic obsession with music and composing, but they were about, you know, they were sociology or they were science classes or they were, uh, writing classes, you know, creative arts or, or literature or history, even Latin, which was a class was one of the only ones I sort of explicitly did not enjoy. I'm so grateful for having taken. So I, yeah, I, to me, that's the best thing that schools tend to offer is the chance to force you outside your comfort zone and be challenged by ideas that you either never heard of or are convinced are wrong and give them a fair shake or a fresh light, that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure how well schools do that in general, um, but to me, that that idealistic promise, that's the real value. Nice. Um, moving across to collaborations, which is a massive part of your work, but more recently involved a series of events with your other half, Angela Bermudez, who's a painter, model, <laughs> and a generally amazingly talented artist. How did you yes. come to meet her and ultimately form the A-Team? <laughs> As I've heard it's so funny because <laughs> I love, I'm so, I'm so, uh, I'm so delighted and, and caught on off, uh, caught off guard by that question. The, it's funny that you also label us that way because we have had much internal discussion about if we should be using such a blatantly sort of um, known name. Uh, so I quietly, uh, sort of surreptitiously retitled it uh, the Viajeros, which is sort of like the travelers. Um, that's in, like in Spanish, that's kind of how they label the character from Journey. Um, and so, uh, so I, I, uh, like for a, a long time I have called her, it's kind of a nickname, I call her Viajera. And so, um, the team as a replacement term for the A team became, uh, for me it became Viajeros, but I feel like it's kind of still an ongoing debate because the A team does have a sort of natural, uh, perfection to it. Uh, yeah. it's just like, it also evokes a whole other thing that's unrelated to us. So, um, uh, but that said, the way that we met was is very simple. Uh, she did this unbelievably spectacular journey cosplay in Egypt in a photo shoot out in the sand dunes. And, you know, f- ever since Journey came out, anytime anybody did anything like that, whether it's cosplay or a cover of the music or, you know, fan art, that kind of stuff – Usually when someone from the team would find out about it, we'd kind of share it around and then like the community manager or the community manager for that game company would share it through their Twitter and very often Sony Santa Monica would retweet stuff or whatnot. And so this was an example where I'm fairly certain Sony saw her cosplay 
if I remember correctly, and retweeted it, and but and tagged me and that game company as a way to say, "Hey guys, check this out." And I remember looking at it and going, "Holy hell, this is far and away the best cosplay anybody has done of Journey." And there's been some great ones, including some out in literal sand dunes. But this was just next level in tandem with the fact that the photographer was truly great. And so, you know, every time people look at those photos, they say, how is that not a screenshot from the game? Um, Because it's just this gorgeous, perfectly made costume and really beautifully shot photos. And so I just reached out to her as I as I always did. Anytime somebody really impressed me with anything, I would reach out and just say, hey, you know, I'm Austin. I worked on the game. Um. And it's such an honor to see your tribute to our work because I'm just so stunned that you went to all these lengths. And in particular, because hers was so extraordinary, I I sent a little note saying, you know, if I, as like some gesture of kind of my gratitude because it's so touching to me, if I could like mail you a CD or something, I'd love to to do that. Um, And she writes back very graciously and, and, and she was very you know just kind of it was she seemed very surprised by it like that was not at all her intention to get any kind of notice like that she did it because she was going to be there shooting uh in the desert you know this ray from star wars cosplay and then thought well hell i'm gonna be there i should do journey while i'm at it and it was it was almost like this afterthought of you know quickly within the last 24 hours before jumping on this elaborate flight to go from Costa Rica to Egypt I'll just throw journey in the mix also as a you know someone who likes that game and um so it was no way like it was no way uh it was in no way a kind of strategic move on her part so she seemed very caught off guard by my request and so we just got to talking and and um and then I discovered very shortly after that that she's this painter and that's actually her real career you know the cosplay as successful as she's been at it and as well known as she is for it it was always a hobby that just kind of took off, but she's an artist, uh, primarily a painter. And I happened, so I commissioned a couple of paintings just cause I thought her work is wonderful and I love supporting, you know, to me it's so win-win. I give a, I, I commission a painting as a gift for someone I care about and I get to support an artist who I think is great. Uh, so it's just this, to me, it's just one of my favorite kind of things to do. And so I commissioned a painting, um, uh, for a friend of mine that had worked on Star Wars on The Force Awakens and as a VFX person for ILM. And so I had her do a painting of his, you know, shot in the movie, but stylized in her own manner. And and that went over amazingly. And then um, a friend of mine was the director of the uh, King Kong Skull Island movie. Uh, and so, and he's a huge journey fan. And so I, I had her make a painting for him for his birthday of like King Kong meeting the little journey character. Um, and it's this truly wonderful painting. And so somewhere in the midst of that, I was looking at her past work on like her Facebook page and I saw a little video of a time-lapse of her creating a painting in like a half an hour. The video was maybe 30 seconds or a minute long and watching in, in literally 30 or 40 minutes, this truly wonderful painting come to life. And it was in this public space, like an art gallery in front of a crowd of people. And it got me thinking that if I didn't ever fathom a painting could be made in that, of that caliber in that amount of time, um, with that level of detail in, in artistry, it just didn't seem possible. I, 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 a lot of my formative years in, in college, early, 
late teens, early 20s, I spent around a cousin of mine who became this kind of Yoda figure in my life who was a painter. And I would watch her agonize over oil paintings for like two weeks straight. Uh, and so to me, the idea that it's doable with any level of quality at all, never mind something amazing, in that short of a span blew me away. And so I pitched to her, what if we did some kind of performance built around speed painting and music together? And it was around that time that MAGFest in Washington, D.C. was reaching out to me to say, hey, you know, we'd love to have, I had done Journey Live there that year and they said, you know, we'd love to have you back next year. What other ideas do you have? Um, so I was asking, you know, what the hell could, could be, could be, um, what could, what could raise the stakes from journey live? Cause that was the most ambitious live performance thing I'd ever done. And so I pitched on Hila, what if, um, what if we did a lot, a concert that's kind of highlights of my work from like the banner saga journey, Abzu Assassin's Creed. And she speed painted this kind of mashup image of all of those characters in one sort of timed out to the to the set list and then uh, you know as a as a piece and then i said then let's raise the stakes and i'll come and sit at the piano and you will stand at the canvas and we both improvise off of each other where i will play piano with no preconception of what it's going to be and everything i play will be inspired by what i'm seeing you paint but everything that you're painting is inspired by what i'm playing so it's a kind of joint storytelling where neither of us is in control neither of us is is the leader it's this kind of chaotic but controlled collaboration that the audience gets to witness in real time that has no defined destination and neither of us had done anything remotely like that it was terrifying to even think about and to my amazement she said yes magfest said let's do it and so a few months after you know, the, the previous commission, we met up in Washington, D.C., which was now about two and a half years ago, and we did it, and it all came off somehow crazy well. A ton of people showed up and witnessed uh, these performances, and and everything about it was crazy. She sold, the, you know, the, she had asked me in advance, you know, can I sell these paintings afterward? And I said, I don't, I don't see why not, but I, that's kind of foreign territory to me. And then after the first performance, the audience just rushed to the stage, and this auction emerged sort of spontaneously and somebody bought the painting right then and there and then another person said can i buy the next painting the improvised one so before it even existed it was already sold and um it was like after that i said i gotta do more of this this was a whole new form of musical expression that i'd never experienced before and you know there's this sort of other context where I was in a really dark place in life and really kind of going through some some dark times and it was exactly what I needed to kind of jolt the system and I uh and so we just started looking for opportunities and we've been doing it all over the world ever since we've been to Europe a handful of times in a in a half a dozen different countries we've been to various places in the US and we have a bunch more booked you know in the months to come and so uh that catalyzed all manner of collaborations uh, you know, she's done a bunch of my album covers. Uh, we did a, uh, an, she put together an art exhibition in Costa Rica built around 
this back and forth we were doing of I would create a piece and then she would make a painting or a, a drawing actually inspired by the piece. Then I would make a new piece inspired by the drawing as if the first piece never existed. Then she'd make a new piece inspired by my second piece as if my first piece didn't exist. And just like this kind of game of telephone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And she made a whole exhibition out of that. And so it's just been just constant and, you know, crazy. We're planning all kinds of things all the time and just, you know, exploding basically in all directions. So that's my long answer to your simple question, but it's just one of those things that's kind of in many respects, totally overtaken my life um, in the best possible way. Yeah, it sounds really wonderful. And just as you were talking, I was thinking about how your back and forth telephone situation almost sounds like the best case game design iterative process as well. Yeah, that's probably where, where the idea initially came from because that's so much of how that process works. You're, you're dead on, especially on a, on a long-term thing like Journey or Abzu or currently now on um, the Pathless with Giant Squid where I can actually help inform their game design and then the, the improvements to the game design then change the music, which then changes the design, which then changes the music. And we are in this constant sort of seesaw of pushing each other. Um, and that's really only possible when you're able to kind of come in on the ground floor. But I, I love it because it forces the music to go through such a profound evolution and it doesn't put this burden on the developer to have this vision to prescribe to me as the composer. We get to kind of find everything from the ground up at the sort of DNA level and beyond. And it's, it's, really, it's really gratifying and it lets you be far, far more original. And, and um, it's also very terrifying because very often you're feeling a bit lost at sea. You don't really know where where you're going. Um, but, uh, but you have to trust that you're working with people and you all help each other find your way. And God knows with someone like Matt Nava, um, you know, that actually finding your way is never the problem. It's, it's always the opposite. It's this spoil of riches where we have so many ideas, we really have to start cutting them. Uh, and, uh, that can be painful, but it's, uh, it's a better problem to have than sitting there scratching your head going, I have no idea what to do here. Uh, it sounds like a really great way to work though. It's great. Yeah, oh, I've, yeah, I love it. I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity as many times as I have. Cool. So next, I'd like to talk a bit about your work on the new game called Erica. And I first wanted to ask how you landed this job. Was it something that you had to pitch for or were you approached as the only composer that they had in mind for the game? It's actually neither. <laughs> uh, it's an unusual one. I was at GDC. Uh, this was years ago, four years ago, maybe. Um, and I was just literally walking along, minding my own business, and a dear friend of mine, this young woman named Priscilla in the UK, messages me out of the blue, and it had to have been like three in the morning in London, um, because it was middle of the afternoon, if I recall, in San Francisco, and she says, I have a friend who's there at GDC, and he's currently at the W Hotel at the bar, and you should go find him and meet him, and it was like, that's basically all I got. And so it's GDC. That's kind of the point of GDC are these wonderful chance encounters. So I very dutifully went over to the W Hotel, went into the bar, and was looking for uh, this guy named Jack who was sitting around with an iPad and some headphones. And he said, are you Austin? And I said, are you Jack? And he said, here, hands me his iPad and his headphones. He said, put these on, um, and it'll prompt you to touch the screen, and then I'll check back in with you in about 15 minutes. And so I put on these headphones, and then I touch the screen, and it opens up this footage of a girl standing on a street corner. And this is not 
game, um, you know, animated 3D rendered model of a person or something. It is footage. It is a movie, as far as I can tell, and a beautifully shot one of a girl late at night standing on a street corner and there's cars in the background and all of that. And then the payphone in the distance rings and, and I'm looking at it and I'm not really sure what I'm looking at. And Jack says, tap the phone. So I tap the phone or like maybe even there was a UI that clued me in to try that. So I just touch the screen, tap the phone and without skipping a beat seamlessly, the girl stands you know stops standing around and then just walks straight to the phone and i was so impressed on just that that i was like oh my god somebody has returned to the graveyard that is the full motion video genre and found a way to make it actually cool and not just this stilted weird movie wannabe with bad acting and bad production design and so I played his little demo and I basically was like, this is the coolest thing. I didn't even – I had completely forgotten and ridden off this whole genre, the whole concept of making a game built around filmed actors instead of you know, traditional game graphics basically. And so I basically said, I want in. You, know, you want me, you got me. And they were still really early. They had made this prototype because they developed tech – that was entire. He and his partner Pavle had made their own tech that was a way to achieve this really seamlessly, and that they felt we've cracked the code that makes this a viable genre in a way that no one else had before. And so they were basically looking for uh, a publisher, and it was like, well, I'm ready whenever you are. And so then they ended up making a deal not long after that with Sony. And we worked on a uh, initial kind of prototype. Sony wanted to to greenlight a kind of mini production of it in order to test out porting their technology, which had been originally designed for iOS, or over to PS4 and figuring out kind of what works and what doesn't and what changes would need to make be made in order to make this kind of viably a console game, that sort of thing. And so I scored the kind of initial prototype several years ago, like three years ago. And then with that knowledge figured out, they then began the process of kind of heavily rewriting their script and staffing up, you know, the rest of their company from the game design standpoint and the filmmaking standpoint. Uh, Because one of the biggest challenges of this genre for the longest time was that you basically were combining filmmakers who didn't know anything about games and game designers who didn't know anything about films and ending up with this ugly hybrid mutant freak that is like cursed from both sides where it's terribly made film combined with ill-conceived game and so they were going out of their way to basically make sure that that was not going to happen here and that they you know their their writers were you know the main writer connor for example really understands how to write a screenplay but is also very much a gamer knows how to you know, write for games, all that kind of thing. Same thing, a film director, a game director, everybody. Jack Jack was kind of the overall creative director on the project. Um, and it was tough. I mean, they, they, they iterated on the script for a very long time. Um, and then finally, maybe about a year ago, summer of 2018, they, um, they had their full production shoot, just like a movie. Actually, it was Angela and I were able to visit the set in London while they were shooting. 
Um, and, uh, uh, and it was amazing to watch, uh, to see kind of, cause I've been on sets before from movies I've scored and it looked just like a set. And yet I could see, you know, I could see them shooting the same scene, but with totally different lines over and over and over. And it was like, okay, this is clearly, this is clearly going to be interactive when all is said and done. It's different than a normal shoot. Um, and got to meet, you know, the cast and all that kind of stuff. And it was really, really, uh, inspiring. And then they were ready to start on to music by, uh, kind of the fall and then I work my ass off on the score from maybe like the proper sort of score from maybe September October all the way until uh, well in a way I'm still working on it because we're just putting the final touches on the soundtrack album but uh, but uh, yeah pro- properly until like maybe May of this year it was a good stretch of kind of on again off again through the vertical slice a couple years ago and then really a pretty hard push for a six to ten month stretch straddling 2018 and 2019. Um, so yeah, and, and, and anyway, that's the, the, the actual answer to your question is I, I neither uh, sort of pitched blindly as if it was just the Sony game where Sony reached out and said, you know, we'd love to talk to you about this, but nor um, had we worked together or anything like that. Um, it was just one of those where I happened to meet Jack before he even had the company up and running and said, you know, I, I, I would so love to go on this adventure with you and see this thing through. Um, and we've stuck, we've stuck with each other. Do you know roughly how much music you wrote versus how much film footage was shot? Well, the game plays like a feature film. So, you know, you sit down and you play it start to finish like you would watch a movie, you know, it's in round terms, two hours, maybe between 90 minutes and two hours. I think they have like five hours worth of footage though. I mean, it's, there is a tremendous amount of branching and it's not trivial. It's not like the old telltale model where you choose dialogue option A, B and C, but then the character will respond with basically the same thing back again. And in the few places where it diverges, it will quickly reconverge with the core critical path of a storyline. This thing really diverges a lot. And there is a lot that can happen within the narrative, even within the, constraints that they have and so it was a massive challenge musically because we had you know pretty limited resources all things considered um and i had to really figure out the way to to maximize the score and also deal with the crazy amounts of interactivity it's probably the most complicated score i've ever written in that regard because Jack's one of his big design tenets with the game was I don't ever want this to feel like you're just sitting back and watching a movie but because you are watching you know footage your brain is constantly telling you you're watching a movie so there's this temptation to just put the controller down and sit back so Jack's kind of rule of thumb was I never want you to be more than uh 10 or 15 seconds from some kind of interaction, whether it's choosing a dialogue option, whether it's, um, uh, you know, deciding which, uh, where the character should go next. Like for example, there could be a scene where, um, there's a hallway to go down and explore, or you can pick up the phone that's ringing on the desk right in front of you. Two very different options and you have to pick one that kind of thing. Uh, so at every given moment, and most options are timed, which means that, um, you have a very limited window in, in that way, similar to telltale, 
uh, like there are Walking Dead or you know Tales from the Borderlands, those games where where you have a pretty finite amount of time, and not choosing is its own option, and the characters will react to Erica doing nothing. Um, so at any given moment, you know you're you're having to do something or conscientiously nothing, or nothing due to paralyzed indecision. Um, and as a result, though, the score is constantly having to adapt. I mean, literally every few seconds. So I think when all is said and done, I probably wrote 350 cues that are like this elaborate chainmail armor of interconnectedness, um, where sometimes there's like seven layers deep in order to get us through 20 seconds of gameplay. I mean, it's just so outrageously complicated. Um, that I, it, it killed me. I mean, it was one of those, I love highly adaptive, really deeply interactive scores, but this thing really was putting me through a meat grinder like I'd never experienced. And, um, but I, it was necessary because, it, because to me, if you just bludgeon a loop th- right through someone's line, when they say something that has dramatic implications, you're just failing to score it properly. You're just ignoring what's on screen. And especially because it it feels in so many respects like a movie. Um, and if you're just watching a movie and a character says something and the music doesn't acknowledge that, you would know something is weird. And we've kind of accepted some of that in games because for the longest time it was basically impossible to have that level of adaptivity in games. And also a lot of games were not written with that level of like moment-to-moment tonal shifts or narrative shifts. But that's like what my big quest, even starting with flow, but particularly on journey and onward, it was like, why are we, I think we're kind of being lazy as composers or we're being unnecessarily complicit just because previous generations had no other choice. But games should be that level of interactive. Like, why should we uh, handcuff our storytelling if we don't need to, especially when there's no technological reason why we need to anymore? It's just a matter of willpower in many respects or taking the time to learn the techniques or develop new ones. Uh, but this game, n- not only was there no excuse not to, um, it, it, was, it was a clear fail state not to. It, it wasn't laziness. It literally would have sabotaged the game if I had scored it any less interactively, I think. And some of it's really, really subtle. Like the player would not be aware deliberately of all the shifting movement going on in the score. And, and the reason why is that I'm simply just trying to keep pace with the evolution of the story in a way that's transparent. So it should feel like any other film score if you just play it back. But that's always what I'm after. That's To me, the interactivity shouldn't be patting itself on the back. All that said, there's probably only about 90 minutes of music. Um, and that's a stretch. You know, There's a lot of cues where I'm very selectively trying to figure out how to repurpose things in real time in order to just not have three hours worth of score because... Um, there was no way to produce that because it's orchestral music. You know, we did sessions in Nashville, sessions in Macedonia, a gazillion soloists. I worked with my my long running uh, beloved uh, partner here in L.A., uh, Tina Guo, in addition to fabulous other soloists like the violinist Caroline Campbell, saxophone uh, player who I've worked with a lot, Ian Roller, uh, clarinetist I work with a lot, Andy Leonard. A phenomenal singer who I actually had not worked with before, but who has worked with many of my friends and colleagues named Oyunga Bold. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's like when you're hiring a lot of musicians and you're recording two different orchestral sessions in two different continents, there's just only so much. Like, if you just keep adding music, you just, there's no way to get around needing more money to record all of that. And, uh, you know, there's, there were hard caps, never mind all the time with my, um, 
spectacular mixer, Steve Kempster. So it was it was definitely the pull a rabbit out of a out of a hat uh, or a or a mountain out of a hat kind of a situation. It always makes me think of that scene in the old Jim Carrey movie, The Mask, where they're emptying his pockets and pulling out like, um, uh, you know, like giant like a bazooka and all this other crap that's just like, you know, vastly outsized for his pocket and super cartoony. That's kind of how it felt. Um, but, um, but it was amazing. I mean, it was, it was, it was like working with a, with a spectacular and intense physical trainer that kicks your ass, but you're the better for it in the end, that kind of thing. I know that scene in the mask. (laughs) <laughs> I'll probably yeah. think of it now whenever I think of you writing music. <laughs> it's what it felt. It's what every project feels like. Even something like Assassin's Creed Syndicate, where you're much closer to the reality of money not being a huge, um, you know, impediment. Like there is a budget for a lot. Uh, even then, your ambition will invariably exceed it. It's like even if someone says, "I'll give you ten million dollars to produce the score," you will think of a fifteen million dollar idea, which immediately is exciting and ambitious and everybody is on board with and you have to then start saying okay well how do i how do i achieve this you know because there is a limit uh, no matter how high that that ladder seems to climb and so erica you know they didn't have they didn't have no money i mean it's a it's a sony title but um, but it was still not infinite by any stretch with um collaborating for example with tina grow i did spot her in the trailer but how do you go about choosing the particular live musicians you work with versus the orchestras who are kind of used to playing together or in the local area i I mean it's it's like casting an actor but in some cases you know you look at someone like you know like martin scorsese casts leonardo dicaprio all the time where he just knows like there's a role for you in what i'm doing i know that i know that's going to be the case that's how i feel about tina there's never a time where i'm writing a cello solo that I, she's not the she's not a spectacular choice for and there are a lot of cellists i love working with you know steve erdoti and andrew shulman are two of the uh, principal cellists here in la in the session world and they are both incredible artists that have had the you know, the amazing fortune to work with many times and absolutely adore. And I've written solos for them and they've been principals in my uh, recording orchestras um, and in live shows. Um, but, but Tina is, is someone who I just consider to be a unique gift to mankind. And she, she's just among the most talented human beings there is. And, um, and, and when you say a phrase like a force of nature, it, it's truly not hyperbole with her. So, and I just adore her. We're really close friends. We've been friends for like 14 years or something. We knew each other in school and, um, and I just absolutely love working with her and I look for excuses to write cello solos just to work with her. Um, so for someone like her, it's, it's a no brainer and truly all those musicians I named, that's the case. Caroline Campbell, the violinist is someone I, I've only uh, recently worked with. There's another violinist I also really love working with named Sandy Cameron, and the two of them alternate back and forth as the kind of guest soloist with this uh, rather famous trumpet player named Chris Bodie. And so I remember working a lot with Sandy and hearing hearing a lot about Caroline from both she and Tina, that Caroline was just someone truly wonderful to work with and, and an incredible talent. And um, and so I, I, I did a little game called Luna and I actually featured both Sandy and Caroline on that. And... Um, 
and Caroline seemed like a really wonderful fit for this one for Erica and just reached out and said, Hey, are you free? And you know, she tours a lot. So it's always a little challenging to find a day that works, but she was available and came in and, and, uh, it was just one day together and she, but she killed it. I mean, her solo, she's all over the score, big, big, lot of violin solos. Um, and just, just crushed it. Um, and so, yeah, it's just about casting. You know, I mean, like in the case of the orchestras, I, I wanted a big lush, string orchestra and i've had enormous uh enormously fruitful collaboration with my friends in macedonia over that we first worked together on journey and i was extremely happy with the results on journey and i've developed a really good vibe and close relationship with their primary contractor and their local conductor because we always do those as remote sessions to their studio in skopje and so i've done probably 15 or 20 projects with them now over the last couple of years and uh, and I thought they would be a great fit, but I also wanted a separate orchestral pass of all basses, uh, a complete just bass ensemble, like at, with multi-part writing, you know, like six or seven or eight voice chords for all double bass. And Nashville is a great place for that kind of thing. They have wonderful tracking rooms at Ocean Way, and we actually used one of their smaller rooms and got a really intimate. Because I wanted, you know, one of the Jack, one of Jack, the director's uh, mandates was, you know, I this thing has to. This is a proper thriller. You know, this game involves a girl learning kind of secrets about her father that she barely knew. You know, he she had she has this trauma of discovering his dead body when she was a little girl, and then now the kind of unsolved mystery of his murder is resurfacing now that she's in her early twenties. And there's a lot of this kind of trauma meets thriller meets almost kind of paranoid, you know, French connections, the conspiracy theory type genre stuff. And so Jack said, you know, think dark, 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 dark. I just I want this to feel like the world closing in around her. But there's an elegance to it. You know, it's not a horror experience. Um, it, it's meant to feel like a, a weighted, impenetrably dark thriller. And so I was very much drawn to those kinds of textures and thought, you know, I love beautiful rich chords that are all just murky down in the in the bottom end i've first dabbled in that kind of thing years ago i did a session with eight contrabass clarinets at abbey road for a thriller movie i had scored called grace and just in love with that kind of approach and so i remember doing that a lot with jason graves on the order uh, 1886 and and uh, just always looking for excuses to make these kind of gorgeously lush deep low menacing harmonies and so um, Nashville was kind of the, the perfect answer for that and, and, um, and flew out there to conduct those sessions, um, myself and, and, uh, so yeah, I was anywhere that you can get a properly close mic sound, um, for, you know, in that particular case, I didn't want a big ambient bass orchestral session. It should feel like a chamber ensemble recording, kind of like how we did Assassin's Creed. You know, we were at Abbey Road in the small stew and Studio Two instead of Studio One, which is the big scoring stage where you would big an or- do a big orchestra. You know, the goal was to get in there close. And when I'm, you know, doing a, a broader orchestral sound like it on like Abzu, we did it Ocean Way also, but in their main, I think it's called Studio A, whereas we were in Studio B or C or whatever they call it at Ocean Way for this. You know, so it's, it's all about just constructing the sound for, you know, exactly what you're after. And I was lucky that we were able to to do that pretty much exactly how I was hoping to were there any elements in the score that weren't live 
Uh, I mean, there's a fair bit of programming that I do. You know, there's textures where sometimes, like there's a sample that I, I you know, it started, I think, as a choir sample, but I put it through all manner of weird processing. Um, and so it's kind of vocal-esque, but it's clearly electronic. So there's a fair bit of that. I think the only instrument that could have been recorded that wasn't is the piano. I played all of that in myself um, and just with the samples and um, decided to keep it. I would always kind of prefer it, but I also dialed in the sound to a like working in the library, got it kind of very specifically. And piano is also one of those things that's a little bit um, disproportionately expensive to record relative to the gain you get over the sample. Um, so it's one of those tricky calls where um, because we were you know, up against the wall uh, on the resources, it's like something's got to go. And I decided that would be the thing. But otherwise, no. I mean, it's it's all otherwise kind of what it ought to be. I suppose there's a few little. It's not really a percussive score, but there are a few little moments with some percussive accents. But again, all of that is so treated in the production process that they become borderline percussion, uh, borderline electronic in the end. I mean, there are a couple little moments where there might be like a cymbal swell that I executed with samples, but but um, but I uh, that's no big deal. It's it's just the the um, overwhelming majority it is is trying to craft like interesting textures that are not stock sounds. You know, that's always that's always the goal. Did you handle a lot of the production yourself or do you have other people that you can hand that over to? In this particular case, I did everything myself. I, I, I Other than the final mix, I have a mixer that I work with where I hand him everything and then I go sit by his side and we work really closely together for three or four days, um, especially in making the orchestra sound like all that it can be and the vocals, you know, there's a lot of vocals. I, I also failed to mention that Laura and Travia is, is, um, fairly heavily featured in the score, but ironically off of a single recording she did in like 20 minutes, there's a source cue in the game. There's like a pop song, a little vinyl record that is a recurring element with Erica, um, you know, something she had heard in her, her childhood that then reappears as like a, as a source cue in the game and they, they wanted that to be something very specific. And so I wrote that before they started shooting so they could actually play it back on set and we could make a little dummy vinyl record of it, uh, as a prop in the shooting and all that kind of thing. And, um, so I had Laura do a quick scratch for that with the full intention of replacing because like, it's, it's like an old fashioned kind of fifties, like unchained melody, righteous brothers, sort of, uh, pop tune. Um, and the, uh, I wrote, I wrote a version of it and then recorded it with Laura and then Sony's, um, in-house staff composer and arranger, Jim Fowler, who, um, is a spectacular composer. You know, he did, he did like blood and truth. He was one of several composers on their in-house title at Sony London blood and truth. And he also, um, orchestrated like Jessica Curry's scores. Like everybody's gone to the rapture and, uh, so let us melt. And, um, he did the kind of he did his own version of the '50s pop, sort of almost doo-wop version. That when I heard it, I, I was planning on doing it myself, and then when I heard his, I was like, "Oh, it's just spot on. It's perfect." So he took Laura's vocal stem that I had recorded for that, um, and uh, and and just used it and and made his own kind of backing track for it. And that's what's on the vinyl record in the game. And then at some point, it dawned on me, kind of late actually, that that source cue is so attached to the character, to Erica's nightmare and to her kind of 
trauma as a child that I stripped Laura's vocal back out of the piece and then use it as this ghostly presence. And I did a lot of manipulation and programming of it all through the score as its own kind of instrument where I'm just literally sort of mangling that original audio of, of her scratch demo um, that then became the final and was never actually replaced because it's just so great and perfect. And um, so she ended up being this sort of featured soloist in a way that was never intended from the start. Um, and so that's an example of you know, an enormous amount of synth programming that that was sort of an unexpected little gem. But so, but in other words, yeah. So the the fine tuning of the final mix was something that uh, I, I collaborated on with my mixer, as I always do. But otherwise, it was all done here. And I engineered all the solo sessions. You know, it's another one of those things I love doing. I love having the musicians come, uh, you know, over to my studio and we record right here at my desk where I can record their solos directly into digital performer and, uh, and match them with like the samples of the orchestra before that's replaced and that kind of thing. And then I export all of it to pro tools and we mix there. So, um, it's a lot of fun. It's obviously a little more tedious than if I was willing to delegate that stuff, but I just love doing it. That's fair enough. It's your creative product after all. I mean, there's value in it. And I have worked on other things where I did um, solicit, um, you know, where I created a, a first draft and then I sent it to somebody and said, can you help flesh this out? And then they would create like a layer and send me all those stems and then I would manipulate their stems and send it back and say, seeing what I did, do you have other ideas here? And they'd say, ooh, well, what if we, you know, put this interesting, you know, um, you know, like tape saturation and there's a cool dis plugin I just discovered, and let's attach that to your kick base and do that, and then send it back. And we end up in a kind of creative back and forth of finding ways to ideally express it. But to me, that's actually kind of a close cousin of when I put a part in front of Tina and I say, Well, look, here's my idea for how to bow this, but what do you think? And she said, Well, actually, if I start with an up bow and then we make this change right here on beat three instead of beat four, how you have it, I'll be able to do this in bar two. And that's way better, I think. And she'll play it back for me and I'll say, oh, yeah, you're totally right. Let's do that. So there, to me, the collaboration with everybody is always uh, enormously empowering and fruitful and exciting. And you make discoveries and, you, and the ideas become their best selves by other people having their chance to put their little, you know, their, their fingerprints on it. Mm. I think. The game Erica was designed for PlayLink, but correct me if I'm wrong, which is the that is correct gameplay designed for PlayStations where players can hook up the game with their phones and that's used instead of a traditional controller to make decisions. Yep. Did you have to take that into consideration when writing the music? Were any parts designed with the phone's kind of speaker in mind? No, there's zero audio from the phone. I, 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 I very fortunately did not have to contend with that because... That I'm not crazy about that. Like if you play a game like Just Dance or or even like Mortal Kombat, um, you know the new MK11. Anhila and I were playing it. She's weirdly, weirdly good at it. By the way, it's very frustrating to play with her. Um, and um, so uh, I uh, <laughs> playing that. They have like sound cues periodically from the controller. Um, and like Just Dance, I think will even do some of that stuff when you use your phone for the you know, the, the gyroscope and the accelerometer and stuff. And I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. Usually it comes off more like a gimmick than something that's genuinely advancing the experience. Um, 
it's not that there's anything wrong or distracting about it, but it, it, it's a lot of work potentially for very little gain. But honestly, it's the first I w- I've even, it never even came up. It, it was, it, this is the first I've even thought about it as a potential thing with Erica because PlayLink is the ideal way to play the game. However, um, the touchpad on the PS4 controller will get the job done. It's a little less precise in its movement, so it can sometimes feel a little iffy, but, um, but it's completely doable. I think sometimes, like I agree that it can be a bit gimmicky, but or it can kind of draw you out of the illusion that you're kind of in the game because you've suddenly drawn your attention to the fact that there's something in your hands playing the game. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the PlayLink play let Jack get as close as possible to his original vision, which was the idea that you're touching the footage. He wanted it to feel like you are reaching right into Erica's world and manipulating her environment and interacting with her and kind of uh, the way I tend to describe it is it's like you're writing co-pilot to her brain, to her sub or to her, to her um, subconscious or her, or her uh, inner sort of voice. Um, and there's something about touching the footage itself that really makes that come across that the controller doesn't quite do. But I mean, I've really only ever played the game on a controller because I was you know, they, they're constantly having to update the PlayLink, um, uh, like the pairing, uh, at play, you know, playing as I have been with a test kit. Um, all the protocols that let PlayLink work are always having to undergo updates just as part of the normal game design iteration. And you don't have to do that with the controller. So I just always suck with the controller and got quite used to it. But I think Jack's vision is definitely about that tactile sense. So it's always about that and not so much about the audio potential yeah i'm looking forward to playing it (laughs) yeah it's really um it's it's i i i really hope that people have a chance to check it out and because i I had a blast working on it and i think that jack's whole mo in a way kind of like that game company is about making games feel approachable and interesting to People that wouldn't necessarily look to games for, you know, entertainment or enlightenment or, or any uh, any experience, um, they think of games as just not their thing, or they're intimidated by games, or they just don't understand games. And you know, that game company's whole idea was we want to make games for people that don't know that they love games, but they will discover they love games by hopefully playing one of ours. That was kind of the mandate with games like Flower and Flow and Journey, and. Um, and I think that's largely the case here. Jack wanted to say everybody watches movies. So what if we just gamify the movie experience? It's very distinct from something like Bandersnatch, which I think is fundamentally an interactive film. Whereas this is, you know, a filmed or a cinematic game. It is a video game. There's no doubt about it. There's dialogue trees. There are, um, branching narrative choices in a way that will feel familiar to gamers um but it's it's simple and it's direct and it's experiential it definitely doesn't have any of the traditional game tropes like there's no way to die or fail or lose or make a choice that results in erica suddenly being killed um so it's it's more like a tgc game in that way you know you can't really fail at journey um but it can still have its moments of you know, anxiety as you endure a challenge and Erica's no different. So, um, so yeah, I really hope people check it out, but particularly I hope people check it out who wouldn't necessarily 
gravitate towards games because I think it can maybe crack the seal for them and realize into realizing that there's a whole compelling art form that they're kind of not paying attention to, whether they're whether that's deliberate or not. I think that was the good thing about Bandersnatch was that because it was through Netflix that people who often would just watch Netflix were then suddenly asked to be making decisions. But do you think it's important to draw the line between what's a game and what's a film, or do you welcome the blurring of those worlds? Yeah, I welcome the blurring between any and all worlds. I mean, to me, the, the, all of life, all segregation or delineation that we place on literally anything is is in on some level arbitrary. I mean, obviously, I'm a well, I don't know how obviously, but to anybody that that knows me, I'm a big science nerd. I'm a big junkie for for particularly life sciences and physical sciences and 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 like things like theoretical physics. But I really do love like evolutionary biology, for example. And when you study cladistics or taxonomy, um, one of the things that always blew me away was that our our means of classifying life are built around ways to just can try to make it as graspable and understandable. But at the end of the day, life is just this continuous, um, it's continuous unfolding generation by generation, species by species, individual by individual. And of course, the study of evolution is the study of population mechanics, and it's less concerned about the individuals and more about the way that you know, genes express on a population level. But at the end of the day, if you really wanted to understand like how X species evolved into Y, if you really wanted to know that to the fullest extent, you would literally need to know every single parent child that exists all the way back through the, the tens or hundreds or millions, tens or hundreds of thousands into the millions or even billions of years. Um, and all of the kind of, you know, you think of like a cheese grater, the kind of lines that we cut down onto that with are there to help us draw distinctions. But like when you look at two species um, that um, can no longer interbreed, um, there's still usually all manner of hedge cases like ring species and things where, where certain environmental conditions mean that they can. And so it's like something even as clear cut as this species versus that, there is no real distinction. And to me, it's the same. Like you look at musical genres, you know, rock on some level kind of tumbled out of jazz. And like, if you really go piece by piece, artist by artist, you can track where these things were really blurrily one. They were both things. Or you look at, you know, like a classic that most composers understand is Beethoven exists at this exact intersection of the tail end of the proper kind of 18th century classical era and the 19th century romantic era and you look at that and you're like well hell i mean even even late mozart and haydn bore a lot of those same hallmarks and just aesthetics were evolving and the population was was changing along with it so to me the idea of drawing a stark de de delineation between film and game it's the same reason why saying this is a game and that's not a game or this is art or can't be art and that can be all of that is so arbitrary we're basically looking at the natural world and drawing red lines where there don't need to be any and especially when not only does there not need to be but it can be very creatively stifling you know someone like jack whose creative expression involves this odd middle ground between film and game you know to me we only make life harder and less creatively fruitful to say well look you got to decide are you a game or are you a film 
Um, I would rather live in a world where it's not really easy to answer that question. But I guess by virtue of the fact that it's not Netflix, but it's Sony releasing his game, sure, let's call him a game. But um, in the best sense, I think it's it's neither and both. Well, I hope that lots of people get to play it that wouldn't usually get to play it. Yeah, or likewise, there's a lot of gamers that think their instinct would be to turn their nose up at it who are pleasantly surprised by it or something, or, you know, any and all of the above. Yes, definitely. Or at minimum, I suppose, I hope they check out the soundtrack. <laughs> well, I'm sure they will. <laughs> That's the best bit, right? <laughs> oh, no, no, come on. That's never the case. But the, but the, uh, but uh, I, it was fun. I mean, I, I know that uh, with games like Journey and Abzu, to my name, um, I'm not quite as associated with darker thrillers that border on horror. Um, I've done quite a bit of it, quite a bit of that, but mostly in indie feature films that no one's ever seen. Um, and so, since the the games that I've worked on that have been fortunate enough to be played by more than just the friends and families of the team, uh, have tended to be the opposite of that. I, I, hopefully, it's hopefully it's uh, something people uh, enjoy and don't feel like I'm. I'm um, I'm straying too far out of my core wheelhouse here. I think it's good to do something a bit different, and I look forward to hearing a different side to your compositions, because I have to admit I've never seen any of the indie films, but I'm now going to look them up because I'm curious. Well, there's a handful that I could happily recommend, but the first one that kind of got me rolling um, in that space was this one I mentioned a little bit ago called Grace. Um, and, uh, but I, the same director, actually, this guy, Paul Sollett, we did a film that came out uh, maybe a year ago or something like that. That's called Bullethead. That's a wonderful kind of action thriller that also heavily features Tina. Actually, Tina has done every film that I've done with that director. We've done five films and she's played on all of them. Um, and, uh, as like a featured and, and grace was way before even journey. Um, I mean like, like four years before journey. It's one of her first ever gigs as a solo artist. We were both right out of school. Um, and Grace was was a very weird score. You know, most of the music is not traditionally made at all. It's the sound of like um, processed baby crying. And I took a, a, a friend of mine was pregnant and, and we I sampled the sound of her um, ultrasound at the doctor's office and made a whole kind of library of weird sounds out of that. And and visited the set while they were shooting and got all this kind of percussion from banging on the walls and on the floor and dragging equipment around and stuff like that from the actual set of the movie. And Grace is, is for sure one of the weirdest uh, things I've ever done. It was it was so liberating. I, I never really regarded music the same again after that. Um, took the gloves off in terms of regarding music as essentially any sound that you can capture or control or maybe even not. So yeah, I have it. It's I think it's free on my Bandcamp for anyone to check out. It's not exactly um, tuneful uh, music, but um, but it was really fun. Mm, awesome. And it's a great movie. It's a Grace is a truly excellent thriller. It's a it's like a drama, really. I mean, it gets called a horror film, but I always thought of it as a drama. Um, and it premiered at Sundance Film Festival and all that. And I, I really loved that movie. I think the director is a genius and. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in the darker side, especially of dark young me, that was like 22, 22 or 23 year old me being as dark as I could fathom. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a blast. 
Oh, I'm only 26, but I'm just out of my dark phase, but I still appreciate the dark stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you're emo now that your hair is bright pink. and Yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, yeah. I never had black hair. I was like, I'm going to be different and bleach it blonde. So, <laughs> mm, so is it naturally dark? It's kind of like mousy brown. Interesting. Well, it, it's certainly not pink. Yes, um, no, I was not born pink. Yes, well, someone will someday, I'm sure. Just <laughs> wait for CRISPR to get full gar- full going and we'll have our designer babies being born with pink hair and like blue eyelashes and the world will... Well, the real, we'll all start looking like, you know, the, the, the elite, you know, Hunger Games people. But um, in any case, so yes, uh, uh, well, I, well, I encourage you to return to a dark phase. It's, it's a wonderful playground for composers. Yes, definitely. Okay, so our final question, because I don't want to keep you too long. If there was any skill that you could learn that you maybe don't have time for with your busy career, what would it be and why? Oh, man, There's, there are more than I could, than I could name. Um, there are, there are things that, uh, I think would be amazing, huge fields of study. I would just love to know more about, and it's less about a skill, um, just all manner of histories and history. And I, I, you know, I wish I, I wish I was one of those people that spoke a dozen languages. I've had family, I have family members like that, that grew up in Europe and spoke every European language. And, um, I, and obviously being around Angela, who is, you know, perfectly fluent in both English and Spanish, I, I envy that. Um, because I, I, I'm one of those damned cliche Americans that is very reliant on other people knowing English and, and, um, and I think language is not unintuitive to me. It's just a bandwidth issue of the time to really properly learn it. Cause I have a bunch of Spanish vocabulary and so Angela will say things in Spanish to me that I'll, I'll know vaguely, but I couldn't it's too jumbled in my mind to summon that sentence on my own. I can kind of decode it when it comes from her, but I couldn't really generate it. Um, and that's a, that's an issue I wish I didn't have. Uh, so yeah, learning languages, uh, especially because I, I love poetry and a lot of poetry, there's a lot of wonderful non-English poetry. Um, and I, and I love, I love writing, you know, like you look at something like I was born for this from journey. And I love setting to music non-English poetry. I love English poetry also, but I love writing music in various languages. You know, like Erica is loaded with Greek uh, from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Uh, and so all the text in Erica is is in original Greek. So I call a Greek friend and I say, walk me through the pronunciation and the syllabic um, emphasis and, and how do I properly construct this. And I try to get a little bit of a crash course to make it as authentic as possible. Um, and, um, and, uh, so there's that, that to me would be a, a, a thing that would be not only useful, but, but I would, uh, I would just love it anyway. Cause I like nothing, I would love to read, you know, like there's great works of literature that have been translated that I would love to read in their original languages if I could, because they what makes them often potent literature is the specific construction and the beautiful use of the language. And a brilliant translator can capture that in a new way, but it's a subjectively new way. And they're like their own artist adding their own unique stamp. That's why when you're reading a great work of literature that's been translated, it's important to see who the translator was because there might be multiple versions of it that are ones fundamentally kind of better or 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 more more popular than than another for for important reasons so yeah that would be something 
um, that I would love uh, to do to to be better at and do more of. And but then there's like stupid stuff, you know. Like I grew up in Colorado and I never really took to skiing or snowboarding. I tried it a, ha- a handful of times, but like for example, when I have gone to the Sundance Film Festival in the past, uh, you know, half the producers and composers and actors and people that go there, they like they'll go disappear from the festival periodically to go get some time in at the park city slopes. And I'm like, man, that would be cool. I gotta, I gotta like, I gotta go relearn how to ski. Cause that's just, that's, that's a cool thing that you can do all over the, there's all these amazing places in the world that you can go visit for that reason that I'm kind of missing the boat on that sort of. So, I mean, and I could go down this rabbit hole for another hour with you of just the, 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 the frightening, nature of how short life is and how many amazing things that we can fill it with. I used to scuba dive, for example, a lot. I'm, I'm fairly um, high up in the certification ladder uh, with Patty, the professional, whatever that is, the the um, Association of Dive Instructors, I think is what it, this professional association, something like that. Um, and I've spent an enormous amount of time underwater, but it's been many years now. And I have a friend um, who's this absolutely insane diver and her instagram is just like this scuba porn that every day i look at and i think man i have got to get back into this and it's something matt nava and i bonded early on over as well and it was a big kind of spiritual heart and soul of abzu so it's been kind of on my list to circle back to ever since working on abzu and i still haven't so yeah it's 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 one of those that i'm always trying to learn new things lately i've been doing a lot more um like writing and directing kind of stuff like Anhila and I are working on projects where I'm kind of borderline sitting in the director's chair or like I created a show last year called Light in the Void where I I you know am like co-writing and co-directing and co-creating with my brilliant um writer director partner on it who you know would kind of develop the ideas and then we would iterate them on to on them together and so it's like you know it's I'm grateful to have opportunities in music and yet at the same time the world is full of other stuff that's also really exciting and always trying to figure out ways to build those in and make how can i you know make myself a better composer by doing those things or just a better person which in the end also does make you a better composer as well so so yeah it's kind of a depressing question in a sense i'm sorry there's too much (laughs) there's just life is you know even if you live to be a hundred um there's 10,000 years worth of viable stuff that would have been great to do or experience. And that's just here on earth. Imagine the people living however many hundreds of years from now when it's not even limited to earth, they'll problem, their problem will be exponentially worse. Quite. So there you go. That's my answer. That's a good answer. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure and fascinating as always. And I'm sure everyone can't wait to play Erica and hear all the music you've written for it. So thanks very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to to talk about it. Thank you for listening to the Sound Architect podcast. Don't forget you can also catch all of our great reviews and other articles at our website at www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. If you would like to support The Sound Architect, please check out our sponsorship link as well as our Patreon.